0: Hear from the word of the Lord, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's winds. And his ministers a flaming fire. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Our God is an awesome God. He is an awful God, an all-filling God. So as we again remember who He is and what He has done, together let us stand in awe of our God, of our Maker, our Defender, our Redeemer and Friend. Oh, worship the King, all-glorious above, Oh, gratefully sing. His wonderful love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with grace. O tell, O tell of his might, O oh, sing of his grace, whose robe is sunlight. Whose canopy space is chariots of wrath? The deep thunderclouds form, darkness his back on the wings of the storm. O oh, measureless night, in love, while angels delight to worship love. My mercies, how tender, how firm to thee end maker will defender, redeemer, and heard. Frail children our dust, and feeble as frail In thee do we trust, nor find these too fair the humbler creation, though feeble their lays, with true adoration shall sing to that praise. Oh, worship the King! Oh, worship the King, all glorious above! Oh, gratefully sing his wonderful love! Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with parades.
1: That hymn we just sang is a reflection on Psalm 104. Um, every verse that we sang talked about a different attribute of God that we find in that psalm. So the psalmist used paraphrase, his own words. Um, reflection, but using the terminology of that psalm gave us what we just sang. And I thought, you know, I do that with my grandson uh, when I put him to bed, when my wife and I are watching him, we read a few verses, I can tell he gets it, but that he could get it maybe a little bit more if I came along and helped him, even at five years old. And so I do a reflection and paraphrase, I use words from that psalm or that verse, if it's elsewhere in the Bible. And then he gets it a little bit better. And then I thought, man, that's what we do right now here at church, whether through music or through sermon. These guys and gals are leading us in music. And then Ryan or Chase are leading us in sermon on a reflection. We can get the word of God ourselves, but they'll help us. They'll bump our understanding up a few more notches by paraphrasing and using words from that passage that we read If you're visiting with us, it's an online visit. I kind of know a streaming kind of visiting of church. Uh, We're so glad you're doing that. I think it's the best way you could spend an hour of your time on a Sunday morning. And whether you're doing that for the first time or for a few months, if you have any questions at all about Desert Springs Church, in these COVID days, the best way to do that is through email. So please email us at info at dscabq.com. For our members, a reminder we've got a members meeting coming up in two weeks on Wednesday. You'll need to do one or two things to prepare for that and you can read about those in the Tuesday email that I send out to the whole church. If you're viewing this thinking, I'm interested in DSC or I'm even a member and I have no idea what this email is Ron is talking about, then just email me, I'll give you my email on the screen in just a few minutes um, and I'll add you to that list. The big news we wanna share with you is that we're reopening our doors Uh, To the church, again, more than a few staff and families that are here with us now. We'll start that in August. And so we're thrilled with great anticipation. We want to share with you that we'll gather again as a church. This is for members, attenders, or even first-time visitors. There are things you need to do to get ready for that, though. And to do that, you'll go to our website. There's a red banner at the top. On that red banner, you'll see somewhere click here for more information about church reopening. So you've got two weeks, please do that, and that'll take you through the logistics of coming back here on Sunday mornings. Any questions at all about that, shoot an email to me directly, and you can do that at ron at dscabq.com. Please pray with me for our service. Father, we're so, so thankful that we can look forward to gathering again in person Uh, Certainly the way you intend it to be. And Father, we're thankful that you've told us through Paul in his epistles three times where he mentions the church gathered is the temple of your Holy Spirit, your presence. So we look forward to that presence. And Father, we ask for believers around the world that cannot look forward to that COVID or no COVID. Believers in closed countries that have no church to look forward to, gathered, This morning, would you bring revival in those lands? In the meantime, would you heal their loneliness by the presence of your spirit and by bringing other believers into their life, helping them to experience your presence in your word and in prayer? And Father, we pray that you would revive those lands. The name of Jesus would be proclaimed and they would in years to come have church to look forward to as we do here and now. In Jesus' name, may we sing with joy of our risen Savior this morning. Amen.
0: Just lift our hearts, lift our voices, and lift the name of Jesus. Continue to tell of all that he has done in Jesus and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him. Jesus, and all in him is mine, we just sing, Oh, the depths, the riches, and uh, beauty that is in the name of Jesus for the believer. Not just is it the name of our Savior, but also the name of our shepherd, brother, friend, our prophet, priest, and king. So let us, once again, sing these old words, and with New eyes of faith today. Rejoice in the comfort that is in the name above all names. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believers. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the trouble. May the music of Thy name refresh
2: my soul. Amen. May the name of Jesus be sweet to us this morning. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to the Book of Second Thessalonians? We're still in uh, this this series while. Pastor Ryan, our preaching pastor, is on his writing sabbatical. Uh, So the book of 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be finishing chapter 1 this morning. And you know, I don't know, maybe you can't relate to this, but there's some Sundays where I feel like the songs already did did the work, you know, like we could just pack up and go home right now. I love the songs we've sung this morning, but uh, but no, God has more more for us this morning. So we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to do verses 6 through 12. So I'll read these verses. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel Every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray with me, God. I'm especially mindful of how dependent I am on you this morning to teach this word faithfully, and Lord, how dependent we all are on you and your spirit acting to help us meditate rightly on these, these things that are hard, but are also a comfort. So God, I pray that these verses would comfort those of us who have put our faith in you, and I pray that they would discomfort those who have not, and Lord, you would even use that discomfort for your glory, that they would turn and be saved from the wrath that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I just uh, bought a globe for my family a world a world globe where my daughter, who's three, called it a place ball. And I thought like, that's perfect. That's what it is. It's a ball that has all these places on it. But I, but I bought this globe because uh, my family has just started a new discipline of praying through a book called Operation World. You know this book? It's a big book. If, you, if you've never heard of it, get this book, or they have an app. What it is, it's, it's just got all of the countries in the world listed in alphabetical order, and with each one, they've got prayer points in it. So you can pray for uh, the gospel to spread in that country really specifically, like how how does it need to spread in this country, and then uh, you can also pray for the church that already is in that country. And so I got this globe so that we could, you know, the book has maps in it, but they're really small. And I thought, I want a globe so that we can turn and we can look at these places as, as we pray for, for them. And, and it's, been, it's been great. If, if you don't have a, a discipline like that, I'd encourage you. It's been so wonderful for us uh, to pray and, and to know that we're a part of this work that God is doing in the world. But even over the last week, as we've been praying through, we're in the C's right now, the letter C, um, I've just been reminded again and again of... The persecuted church of the church around the world uh, that, that for their faith in the gospel and for their proclamation of the gospel, they are afflicted. They are oppressed and attacked by those that hate Jesus. So like this week, we prayed, we prayed for China. And I'm sure you know about our brothers and sisters in China. I, have, uh, I know people in China and, and that they have to meet in secret. They have to sing quietly because they don't want people to find out that they're doing that. Because the Communist Party hates the testimony of King Jesus. And we prayed for Colombia. I didn't know this. I don't. Colombia, the Church in Colombia is very persecuted. Did you know this? That that the drug trade is so entrenched there, and there are greedy politicians, corrupt politicians, and then there's even those that practice the occult. And, and they attack the church because the testimony of the gospel is a threat to, to what they are trying to accomplish there. The way that they're trying to hurt people. And, and so they attack the church. They destroy property. Once a year, every year, at least dozens of pastors are killed in Colombia to try and keep the church from preaching the gospel. And so we've been praying for these people. We've been praying for these countries and, and I'm just reminded of how different our context is. Praise God. Praise God that we've got the liberty that we have in our country, that we can do this, even if we've got to wear masks, and you know, this is nothing. Praise God that we get to do this. But but I, but it, it's just so different for people today around the world and their situation in places where the church is persecuted is really similar to the situation that the Thessalonian church was in when Paul wrote this letter. So we have to have that in mind when we read. When we read a letter, especially verses like this, because as I said, the whole point of this chapter is Paul trying to comfort a church that's being persecuted severely. He's trying to comfort them. So last week we saw, especially in verse 5, that Paul's trying to comfort this church by, by reminding them and us that the fact that we're even being persecuted and then enduring and growing in that persecution, that that's an evidence that we actually are in the kingdom. Remember that word? It's, it's an evidence of God's righteous judgments, that we're worthy to enter into eternal life. And, and so he comforts them with that thought in verse 5, and now in verse 6 he moves to a different kind of comfort that's not focused on the church per se, but it's focused on their persecutors. It's a comfort for Christians that, that those who persecute the church will one day be judged worthy of wrath, and they will suffer eternal punishment for their sins. And so I wonder, do you find that comforting? Do you find that idea of God punishing sinners for all eternity a comfort? I think if we're honest, that feels very uncomfortable. We in our church church Culture don't, don't really like to talk about hell very much. We don't like to talk about punishment very much. We would rather talk about other things. And we certainly don't want to talk to unbelievers about hell and punishment. And I think unbelievers would rather we not talk to them about it either. And you know, I think, I think on one level, I don't want to be too hard, I think on one level there's a right impulse behind that. Okay, even God, the Bible says that even God in Second Peter doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Okay, so even God knows the value that a human being has made in his own image. And that the loss, the death, even the eternal death of any human being is a tragedy. It's a tragic result of the fall. And as we'll see, it's a, it's a just response to the fall. But, but we should never take the doctrine of hell lightly. And I think that's why some of us might have a, an aversion to this idea. Because we have heard people preach fire and brimstone and they almost do it self-righteously they almost do it like they're glad to talk about the people that are going to hell and that is certainly not God's heart we know that that is not God's heart but neither is it God's heart to never talk about it if you were to read the whole Bible through and you came to the parts about Jesus you would realize that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else did by one estimate if if you took all of the verses that contain Jesus's teaching 25% of them have to do with the end times and with judgment and with hell so as we come to a study a passage like this one it might make us uncomfortable it's going to be it's going to be hard but Jesus wants us to talk about it and my hope is that as we talk about it it would be what it's meant to be, a warning, a warning to those that have not put their faith in Jesus Christ about what awaits them and what is the hope of the gospel. But church, my hope also is, is that we talk as we study this this doctrine of hell and eternal punishment, that you will be better equipped to talk about it with unbelievers, that you will have better language and better answers to these questions when they come up because we need to talk about it. We can't be afraid or ashamed of this idea because it's so central to the gospel but most of all, I hope as we study this passage in particular today, church, that we would, we would see why this is meant to be a comfort, why this is meant to be comforting for the church in this age. So that's really the big question that I want to answer in our text today. How is this doctrine, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of eternal punishment, how is that a comfort for us? And we'll answer that with three R words, okay? So, This is a comfort because it is the promise of the church's relief when unbelievers are repaid so that Jesus is revered. That's that's a whole text in a sentence, and that's going to be our outline. It is the promise of the church's relief when unbelievers are repaid so that Jesus is revered. And you'll see I tried to break this down along verse, verse lines, but this is, I, I think I mentioned last week, this whole thing, verses 3 to 10, is one big sentence. So this is all kind of interconnected. So don't pay too much attention to the verses that I put on there, but, but that's, our, that's our outline. So, so the first point, this is the promise of the church's relief. And I'll back up to verse 4 for context. Paul writes, Your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring are evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Now I've often heard non-believers say, I don't know how a good loving God could send people to hell. Have you heard somebody say that? And they say that like that's a really good argument for not believing in God. I don't know how a loving God could send people to hell. But if you thought about that for just one second, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, Because when you raise that objection, what you're actually focusing on is the people that are being punished and you're ignoring the people that have been afflicted. What you're really saying is, I think a loving God would actually allow evil people to continue hurting other people. And I wonder how our brothers and sisters in Colombia would feel about that. We should really think about it this way. What would a good father do when he sees his children being hurt by someone else? You ever had that experience? I know... my my daughter is still young but it's already happened we were at the playground one time and a little boy was rough with her and she started crying and that kid better be glad that I am filled with the Holy Spirit (laughs) because I don't think I've ever been so angry about what he did to my little baby that's my baby and I love her and I will not let someone continue to hurt her so what did I do because I love my little girl I intervened not in wrath. That kid is okay. He's fine. But I did everything that I could to make sure that that was not going to continue happening. I gave my daughter relief. That's the word that Paul uses in verse seven. And that relief came through my judgment, okay? I judged my daughter worthy of protection. And I d- judged this other kid. I wanted to judge him a lot more. But I at least judged him worthy of removal, of punishment. That he was not allowed to enjoy the same experience that my daughter was because he was ruining it for her. That is a loving father. And Christian, that's a little picture of how God loves you. Do you get that? We, we have been adopted by God God has become our father, and he cares for you so much more than I care for my little girl. He loves you, and he knows when you're suffering. He knows when you have been hurt. He knows if you have been abused, and he will intervene. He will act to make everything right for you, and he will act so mightily that when it happens, the the book of 2 Corinthians says that, that your suffering will feel light and momentary compared with the glory that he will give to you. He will act. He will make everything right. I don't know when. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. But we know that God will not forsake his children. He promises to grant you and all of us relief. And that's a comfort. Amen? Amen? But that relief will come through judgment. Scott Souls has written a book called Jesus Outside of the Lines. And in it, he writes, for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who has been abused or bullied, or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. We need, he writes, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. Isn't that great? That's the God that we have. And then someone will say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an abuser. I'm not a rapist. I lead a decent life. I give to charity. I try to help people. And no, I'm not a Christian, but I certainly have not persecuted The church. So what happens to me? What about me? Well, this text has in view a lot more than just people who have actively persecuted the church. That's a subset of everyone who is included in this judgment. Verse 8 expands on who will receive this divine wrath. And it's not just persecutors. They're just swept up into a larger group. In verse 8, of all of those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus so this judgment that we're thinking about is not just for really bad people. Okay? It's for everyone who has failed to recognize God for who He is and then put their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that even includes really good people. Even people that are generous and well-behaved. And so then you would ask, well, then how on earth is that fair? How is it fair that God would judge someone that's lived a decent life? If you really understand what the scriptures teach about God and his holiness and about our own sinfulness and what sin really is and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you would realize that the better question is, how is it fair that God would spare anyone? How on earth is it fair that God would adopt any of us as his children? And love us with the love of a Father. How is how is that fair? Because the truth is there is no one who is good. Only God is good. What we all deserve is that punishment. And you have to appreciate this. You have to understand the weight of this. The Bible teaches that everyone has sinned, has disobeyed God's commands. And that, in, that includes me. Okay, this is the problem that we have with fire and damnation preachers, is they act like they didn't they didn't deserve it too. I deserve this. Two, okay, maybe you haven't murdered anyone. Maybe you haven't abused anybody. Have you ever lied? Have you ever been insensitive, said something hurtful to someone else? Have you you just been selfish? Have you seen somebody that needed help and, and you acted like you didn't see it and you didn't help them? The Bible would say that is all sin. That is all breaking God's commandments and, and not only is it, is it evil for disobeying God but, but think about the effects that those things have on the world think about just what one lie can do or one slander one misplaced word all of that even the minor, most minor sin it sends these ripple effects out into the world and it ruins everything it hurts everything everyone there's no such thing as a private sin it all goes out and it wreaks havoc and we can't just try and do good things to take it back okay we can do lots of good things but we cannot cancel out the effects of our sin what this is 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 the the effects that go all the way back to the the first sin of our first parents that that has just been going out their sin my sin your sin and it has been breaking the whole world and so we we are the very thing that our souls groan for relief from we are the very problem there's a story that that goes that around the turn of the 20th century the times of london sent out an inquiry to famous authors to write opinion pieces to just answer the simple question what's wrong with the world because that's, that's the big question, right? If we can figure that out, then we can figure out how to fix it, and then we'll make everything better, right? So they asked all of these great thinkers at the time to, to write and answer that question. What's wrong with the world? And the, the brilliant Christian thinker and writer, G.K. Chesterton, was one of the people that they asked for a response. And he wrote back, he just wrote this. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's right. And we have to appreciate that. We, we are not good people. We are not good people. And, and not only are we hurting other people and ruining the whole world with our sin, as I said, we are sinning against God himself. And I think that's why Paul says in verse 8 that, that these people that will receive this punishment are those who do not know God. Do you see that? They don't know God. They don't appreciate that God is their creator They don't appreciate that God is the moral lawgiver. It's his standard that we're supposed to obey. They don't appreciate that God is the Lord to whom everyone will give an account and that to disobey that God is nothing short of rebellion against the Lord of Lords. R.C. Sproul said it well when he said sin is cosmic treason. You know what treason is? To actively work to try and topple the person that's in authority whom you actually owe allegiance to. It's to try and work to undermine the one that is in charge and put somebody else on the throne and that someone else is you. You're trying to put yourself in God's place. And this is why the Bible again and again uses words like hostility, enmity. Enmity means you are an active enemy of God. The Bible uses words like that to describe who we are in our natural state with relation to God. That that we are not God's children, we are God's enemies. And we are working by our sin, intentional or not, to remove God from his throne. And even in our own country, you know, I went on a weird rabbit trail where I was looking at our federal codes about how we treat treason, which is in the Constitution. Even in our own country, treason is punishable by death because it's that serious. So how much more treason against the eternal God who made you? How much more does that deserve? Eternal death. It is totally appropriate. It is totally just. And it is what every one of us deserves. And that is not comforting at all, is it? And yet the church here is comforted. And we can be comforted, but it begins by really understanding how bad this is. How bad this situation is and that we all deserve What we see in this next point, this text is about the promise of the church's relief when unbelievers are repaid in verse 9. We saw that word repaid earlier, but verse 9 says that all unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. And This verse, this is, oh, this is an awful verse, and it trips people up a lot of times. I, I think people are really eager to misread this verse, to try and downplay how bad it is. Okay, what this verse is not saying is that unbelievers will be called what, what some call annihilated. They will not just be removed from existence and cease to exist, like they just won't be conscious anymore. And that would be better than what this describes. Because what the Bible actually says about this punishment is that it is eternally conscious. That you are aware of what is happening to you for all eternity. Jesus himself, when he's talking about hell, he describes it in Mark as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the book of Revelation uses this horrifying description. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest Day or night. They're aware of what is happening to them. And it is torment forever. So that word destruction in verse 9 is obviously not annihilation. It is something much worse. And what exactly it looks like, we don't know. It may surprise you. The Bible does not give us a lot of details about what hell is like. It's almost like it's too awful. When it is described, especially by Jesus who described it the most, it is described as being cast into outer darkness in a place of weeping and agony. And I think it's very telling that almost every mention of hell in the Bible is accompanied by fire. So you imagine being thirsty and burning forever and there's never any relief and that's not that's not the worst of it this verse verse nine i think actually gets it what is the worst part of this eternal punishment is that it is occurring away from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his mind when when you read the bible when when the authors talk about what eternal life will be like what our hope is There's one thing about it that always captures their attention more than anything else. And they talk about a lot of great stuff. They talk about renewed, restored, resurrection bodies that are perfectly healthy. They talk about receiving heavenly dwelling places and rewards that are stored up for us. I think those are real rewards that we're going to get when we go to heaven. I don't know what that is, but it sounds great. It talks about that we will get to see those that we have lost in the Lord, that we will get to be reunited with people that we love. For eternity. And those are all great things. But when when the Bible authors talk about heaven, do you know what the one thing is that gets them the most excited? God's there. They get to be in the presence of God. The dwelling place of God will be with man. And in one sense, that's the hope of the whole Bible, isn't it? Okay, You start at Eden where we were present with God and then we lost that presence. And then the rest of the Bible is just God bringing his presence back. The tabernacle, the temple, Jesus himself, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, that our hope when we're going to be caught up in the air with Jesus is that we get to be with the Lord forever. And so I wonder, this is a good question that someone has asked. If you could have all of that other stuff about heaven. If you could have the resurrection and the rewards and get to see your loved ones, but God wasn't there, would you still want to go? Paul would say no. I think to Paul, that would sound very much like hell. Because verse 9, those in hell will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. I say that's the worst. This is the exact opposite of the real hope of every human heart, which is to be reconciled with God, to be near to God. This is being cut off from God, cut off from the source of life, of love, cut off from the source of any and everything good. But I think we need to be clear here, too, because, again, I think sometimes people want to misread what this is is saying. I don't think what this is saying is that God is not actually present in hell. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And I don't think hell is excluded from that. So what I think this is saying is that his relational presence is not in hell. That this is, this is God not being present to bless or care for in any way. This is the removal of all of his common grace that even the worst sinner in this life gets to enjoy. That the rain falls on the just and the unjust in this life. But in that Punishment, God is not present in any way except to destroy with his act of wrath forever and ever. Revelation, again, gives this description in chapter 14. The one that does not believe will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's worse than God just not being there. Or hell being the absence of everything good. I think hell is that, but I think hell is worse than that. It is the pouring out of the wrath of God forever. And again, this this is what we deserve. This is right. For our sin, and until you appreciate that, you cannot appreciate the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is where this is, this is all going. So our last point. This text holds out the promise of the church's relief when unbelievers are repaid so that Jesus is revered. Do you know what revered means? I was, I was forcing it with that R word this time. I just wanted them all to, you know. Reve- to revere something is to, to view it with awe. It is to worship. It is to glorify. That's where this is all going. Verse 10 says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So you notice there's a contrast in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is about what's going to happen to unbelievers when Jesus comes. They will suffer away from his presence, and did you see, away from the glory of his might. And then verse 10 is all about believers, the ones who have believed the testimony of the apostles. They've believed the gospel. What do they do? They glorify God. They enter into his glory. They even receive that glory on themselves by virtue of their being in the glorious kingdom of Jesus. And there's already been so much in this passage that's glorious. Jesus comes from heaven with mighty angels. He comes in flaming fire. It's so impressive. And all that language is actually taken from the Old Testament. This describes the appearances of, of Yahweh. When people just want to fall down flat on their face because they're so awe filled, it's awful. In the good sense of that word, what this is describing is, is the Lord of hosts, who the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere is described as a consuming fire. So it's it's glorious, it's impressive imagery, and it's such a contrast to Jesus' first coming. When he was a, a baby born in a manger, he was fully God and he was fully man, but that fully God was veiled. That word revealed in verse 7 of our text in Greek, it's, it's where we get the word apocalypse, which means an unveiling. It means that there was something that was there that was always true, that was covered up, and then the revelation is it being pulled off. When Jesus came the first time, he was veiled. Though he was God in the flesh, he grew up humble, poor, even oppressed, And he came near his enemies. He came close to his enemies in human form, begging them to repent. Begging them to stop committing cosmic treason and to join the kingdom of his father. And for that testimony, for that that word that he preached, he was betrayed and then unjustly murdered on a cross. Jesus knows what it is to be persecuted. He can identify with us in that suffering. And for all of its veiled reality, that death on the cross was one of the most glorious moments in all of human history. Again, someone may ask, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And as we've already looked at, I hope I have established That is exactly what a loving God would do. But in another sense, God doesn't want to. He doesn't want to send you to hell. He would rather you stop being his enemy that justly deserves his punishment. He would rather you turn and repent. That is why he sent his son to preach this gospel of salvation. That is why he sent his son to die. And if you would repent, if you would turn, you will be forgiven. Just like the Thessalonians were. Do you remember in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, it says that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what Jesus does. And so if you're really going to question God's fairness, you should do it at this point. How on earth is it fair that God would just forgive someone that deserves eternal punishment? How does that work? Does that mean God suddenly doesn't take sin seriously? Because, oh, if you just turn to him and believe, that's it. It just vanishes. It goes away. Is that how it works? No. When When you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read about when Jesus died on the cross you can tell that those authors are doing everything that they can to evoke judgment day imagery when Jesus is on the cross. It gets dark. There is weeping. There is agony. There is thirst. Jesus himself cries out in a loud voice, My God, why have you forsaken me? The father turned his face away from his own son on the cross. What's going on? Do you get it? The son of God left his place in heaven, came to be born as a mortal man that could die. And when he was nailed on that cross, he experienced the full weight of God's wrath for your sin. He took the punishment that you deserved onto himself and he suffered an eternity's worth of wrath on the cross for you so that the punishment would be paid. This is how God is just. God doesn't just wink at our sin. He doesn't just say, oh, if you believe in Jesus, it's gone. No, he takes your sin off of you and onto his own son and gives his son hell. So that you can have life. But the the choice is yours. The choice is yours. If this is the first time you've heard me preach, I don't think I'm a, a fire and brimstone preacher. But I am today. Because this is the passage that we're in and... And this is real. This is coming for you. If you have not believed in Jesus, you are God's enemy. And you have a weight of sin on you that will be punished for all eternity. Jesus did not stay in the grave. They took him off of the cross. They put him... In the ground, and then he rose again from the dead in power, in glorious power. And then, as the Apostles' Creed says, he ascended into heaven. He is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that coming will be unveiled. There will be no more patience, there will be no more humility, just glory. And you have to know that if you don't believe, you have to have that sense, right? That there is justice. We all want justice. You have to know that there is justice and that you will be held account for for what you have done. And we don't know how much time you have left. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And you don't know when you're going to die. I'm not trying to be manipulative here, but, but seriously, people die every day. Nobody's planning on it. And if you die in your sins, you will go to hell. And when Jesus comes back, you will suffer unimaginably. But if you believe, if you believe the testimony, the testimony of these scriptures, if you believe the words of my mouth right now, don't don't slap this away. Don't add to your list of sins the fact that God came so near to you to love you and you slapped it away so that you could stay on your throne for a few more days. Don't, don't do he's, he's calling out to you right now if you hear my words repent acknowledge god say no i know god and i know that i've sinned against him and i know that i deserve hell god forgive me pray that ask god for that forgiveness and then on that day when judgment comes you will stand before the throne and you will say i know i know that i deserve eternal punishment but Jesus suffered for me. Jesus has already died that death. Jesus has already experienced hell and my place. And my sins are forgiven. And instead of being judged worthy of destruction, you will be judged worthy of the kingdom. Not, be, not because you did anything righteous, but because Christ the righteous suffered in your place and gave his righteousness to you. I loved what we just sang. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me, but he has? Do you believe that? And that's why this is a comfort for you, Christian. To think about the doctrine of hell. So that you can be reminded of what God saved you from. And marvel all over again at God's grace to you and Jesus. What Jesus suffered for you. And what you will never suffer. Do you remember? I don't know, I don't know what your testimony is. But, but I just remember. <laughs> I remember believing the gospel. And how sweet it was to know that I was saved. From what I deserved. I was so aware of how awful a person I was. And I was so aware of how good a person Jesus was. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it, but it was true. Jesus died for me. And I don't ever want to forget that. And I don't want you to forget that. And sometimes what it takes is just to think about what would be ours if it were not for Jesus. And then we say all the more again, hallelujah. Marvel of what we have been saved from. And we marvel at what we have been saved to. Of what our hope is. Church, one day very soon, we'll get to play on the playground. And all the bullies will be gone. Even the bully inside us. Christ has taken that sin. It has has died. It will be removed forever. And then in that day, it will just be us and God. And joy and peace and happiness. And love and life forever and ever. And that is our relief. And fixing our eyes on that hope that can get us through a lot in this life. Amen. And in that day we will worship. That's what this says that Jesus will come and we will get behind him and we will we will just worship. We will glorify him. We will will marvel at him. So today let's worship. We wait in that hope and we seek to glorify God in this life as much as we will when that day comes. I think it's really interesting that this chapter that has been all about the end times shifts at the very end to a prayer about how we live our lives today. Paul asking God that he would keep us in that hope that we were saved in. So that we wouldn't depart from that faith but that God would keep us worthy. I love that we are so dependent on God for our perseverance every day of our salvation. And so Paul prays that we would even glorify God now as we live lives of righteousness and of love and of sacrifice, even love for our enemies, even love for our persecutors, just like Jesus did. That's what Paul prays for, that we would do every good work and all of our works of faith Because in this time of the already and not yet, we have already been saved. That day is not yet here. This is what we're here for. To glorify God, to worship God, and to love in a way that testifies to the love of God that we have known. In the gospel. Even in the face of persecution. So that even more people would turn and be saved. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. And neither should we. So that on that day even more saints would join us. As we marvel at the unveiled Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Who promises us relief when he repays our persecutors. So that he's revered forever. So with Paul I say, verse 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be so. Let's pray. Yes, God, make us worthy of this calling. Help us to appreciate what you have saved us from. And why we needed that salvation that we have sinned against you and our thoughts and in our words and in our actions and in what we have done and what we have not done. God, it's right that you would punish us. And we thank you for Jesus who was punished in our place. God, I pray that you would give us a greater appreci- appreciation of that so that we wouldn't walk in our sin anymore, the sin that Christ died to free us from, but that we would glorify you with our lives. And that we would proclaim this testimony to people that need to be saved. God, we pray that you would use our church to save those that are under condemnation so that they would know what we know, that in Christ there's no condemnation. Lord, I hope somebody's hearing this right now, that this, this is new for them. This really is good news. It's new. But that they would believe it and that they would have the relief that we have. And we ask that, too, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, hail the King who comes again. Oh, He comes with clouds descending, once for favor. Saints are dead. T-
2: sad that we can't be singing right now because I want to worship Jesus for this for what he's done so we say come, come Lord Jesus come Lord Jesus come quickly and then we can sing we can rip these masks off and sing have you believed this? You know? Do you know this relief that I'm feeling right now? Do you know this joy that I'm feeling right now? Because if you don't, you can. It is not hard. Just repent. Quit fighting God. You know you're doing it. And submit to him. And he will become your father. And he will ferociously guard you for the rest of your life. Amen. Church,